Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Spring and summer bring flowers and butterflies to the garden. Butterflies lift our hearts and delight us with their beauty and elegance. They also pollinate our plants. In our last program, we spent time with Kathy Downs, who's a Texas master naturalist and monarch watch conservation specialist. Monarchs are one of the most beloved of butterflies. They're unusual because they migrate south in the winter and make a return migration north in the spring. Kathy has studied monarch butterflies and is an expert on them and on their habits and needs. In this program, monarch butterflies are our focus, starting with their unusual habit of migrating. Kathy Downs begins by talking about the winter monarch migration to the south. It's going to start actually as far up as Winnipeg in Canada, and that's going to be around August because their milkweeds are going to start to senesce. The days are getting cooler and the sun is going down sooner. So these are all signals to the new generation of monarchs that have closed in Winnipeg at that time. They are going to notice the absence of milkweed and they are not going to uh, develop sexually. So there'll be no breeding. And they'll recognize these signals and begin to start flying south-southeast at about a rate of 20 to 30 miles a day on average. They'll start to go south. Um, they'll start to be joined by New England, Montana, anything east of the Rockies. And we're talking specifically about the population east of the Rockies. There's an entirely separate population west of the Rocky Mountains that has their own overwintering area. But for the eastern population, this all begins about mid-August. They're um, using two different kinds of flight. Um, depending on uh, how far they're traveling each day, whether the thermal winds are with them, whether they're at high altitude or low altitude, depending on the weather. Um, they're being joined by millions and millions of other monarchs each day. As the days get shorter, the milkweed starts to fail in these other um, latitudes. The migration gets larger and larger. Um, are, so, they, are they eating something along the way or getting water or how do they They're continue? flying most of the day and then dropping down to roost along uh, humid waterways, cool resting areas at night. They're dropping down to get nectar and then choosing a place to overnight. So this is really unique behavior because no other butterflies really do this where they mm -hmm. gather together at night. And this is very unique behavior for monarchs who don't do this in their normal 30-day mm -hmm. cycle as generations. Um, they're single individuals in every other way except during migration. And then um, their scales, of course, are also providing a, a bit of warmth because of the air that's um, in there. So they're also roosting together, and they're continuing their journey as a crowd. And the crowd gets larger and larger. It's really pretty fascinating the way yeah. that works. Yeah. Um, they've been known to fly as high as ten to 12,000 feet in the air. Um, they've been seen in uh, by gliders. They've been seen along with hawk and um, other bird uh, migrations, just flying along with them. Sometimes we can't see them at all from the ground. We may not even know that there are monarchs migrating up there. So they're flying and they're stopping every 
20 miles or 20, 30 miles a day? And then how long will it take them to eventually get to Mexico? Well, it's going to take a good two to two and a half months for most butterflies, a little bit longer for some. I mean, we had a tagged monarch. Uh, it was tagged at Grand Manan Island in uh, Canada and recovered in Mexico, which meant that that monarch, who weighs no more than a paper clip, flew 3,000 267 miles. I haven't traveled that far in my car. So that's just <laughs> that's fascinating amazing. to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, but the two different kinds of flight are going to be significant in how far they travel. So they have a powered flight, which is about 12 miles an hour. And so that, if they want a resource, if they need the nectar, they may break down, uh, go down, get their nectar, or if they're using powered flight for breeding, um, they're going about 12 miles an hour. Um, when and when you say use, powered, they're flapping their wings. They're flapping their wings. Okay. That's right. Thank you. Um, and they're using up a lot more energy that way. So during migration, they're usually using gliding flight. And the idea is to get there as soon as possible with as little danger as possible. So they're not nectaring as frequently as we might think. Um, they're nectaring when they come out of roosting in the morning catching up on their nectar is the best time to see them in the fall is about 10 to 12 uh, in the morning when it warms up a little they're coming out of their roost they're looking for the nectar to get going on their way again um, and just before dusk when they're coming in looking for roosts um, they've been flying for a long time all day um, when they're gliding they one flap of the wing could take them 20 to 30 feet uh, if they're catching thermals, they could move as much as 150 miles in a day. So it's wow. really variable. Yeah. Um, but the need for nectar, because they're not breeding, they're not using that energy. Um, if they're catching thermals, they're not using the energy with powered flight. Um, so it's kind of variable that way. So, um, I'm sorry, when they're coming down and getting nectar, mm -hmm. you're, again, from milkweed only or no, from anything? No, no. In the migration, uh, during the fall, the important thing to have out there this time of year is going to be nectar plants. Okay. We have no use for milkweed for the migratory generation. They're not breeding, so they don't need milkweed to lay eggs oh, on. Okay. Generally, our native milkweeds have senesced or gone by. This was the signal that told them, one of the signals that told them to migrate. There's no milkweed here. We can't breed. We need to go somewhere else. It's too cold here. We can't live mm -hmm. over under 19 degrees. We have to move from here. So like most migrating animals, their signals are telling them that they can't survive yeah. under those circumstances, so they need to migrate. So the milkweed is not the important thing at this time of year, especially where we are here now. Yeah. Um, this is their last chance to gain the fat that they need to overwinter an interesting uh, fun fact, monarchs are one of the only animals that gain weight when they migrate. So what we're really looking for wow. is the fattest abdomen we can possibly put on them before they cross the Texas border into Mexico. Well, I would just say that to remember their annual cycle, and particularly for Texans, is to remember milkweed, milkweed, milkweed in the spring, and nectar, nectar, nectar in the fall, because Texas is the funnel for migration. We are probably one of the most important states to 
determine the summer breeding population. This is their first start getting out the gate. So milkweed content in Texas is going to be really important to dictating the summer breeding population. And when the overwintering migration comes through, this will be the butterfly's last chance to put on the weight that's necessary for them to survive the struggle of overwintering in Mexico. So nectar, wherever we can plant it, as much as we can plant to be available to them to put that last bit of weight on before they enter the overwintering areas of Mexico in the fall, we could do this for them. They're worth the they're worth the effort. Oh, one thing uh, you you mentioned this early on is that monarch populations are declining. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that related to? Is climate change part of that? Well, yes, I think it is. I mean, it it certainly manifests itself in drought um, in the overwintering areas. The OML fir trees that they choose to overwinter in on these volcanic mountain ranges, I know, are suffering from. Uh, higher heat indicators. This is in Mexico. This is in the Mexico overwintering areas. Mm -hmm. There are some climate change issues that are very strong. We have development taking up 6 million acres a year in this country, removing habitat. We have agricultural practices that are removing millions of acres of habitat. We have pesticide issues that are removing millions and millions of um, larvae. The population in 2012-2013 was the rude awakening. We had a population of only 33 million uh, monarchs Mm -hmm. compared to over a billion in 96. Uh, It was that population that really got us uh, working with national partners um, to relate to each other and to partner up in conservation uh, groups. Monarch Joint Venture um, now has over 80 partners working together to conserve monarchs. Utility uh, companies are working to conserve and um, replace habitat in right-of-way areas. Departments of Transportation are now working to uh, conserve roadways and medians um, to bring back pollinator habitat on these much-used highway areas. Agricultural uh, financial incentives are in place to bring back some of the fence rows and the uh, agricultural uh, uh, borders that the pollinators used to use. So there's a lot of incentive now to bring back pollinator and monarch uh, milkweed habitat. So we have seen a slight increase in populations, but we've seen rebounds before. So we can't get too excited about that. We're going in the right direction, but we still need over a billion stems of milkweed in the ground. We're not there yet. We still have a population that is not where it needs to be to secure the migration. Mm -hmm. There is a a petition uh, to list the monarch butterfly as an endangered species that's been out there since 2014. And the Fish and Wildlife Service um, is attempting to conserve the habitat uh, to bring that um, petition to a close. And like so I said- So that has not happened yet. No, ma'am, that has not happened. And uh, there have been uh, delays on uh, closing the petition 
to meet some of the conservation needs. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Uh, I'm here today with Kathy Downs, Master Naturalist, and we're talking about monarchs. But right now, it's time for a break. Listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Kathy Downs, Master Naturalist and Monarch Watch Conservation Specialist. We're talking about the monarch butterfly. The monarch population has been declining sharply, perhaps because of climate change issues and also because of the loss of habitat and the use of pesticides. Another issue is winter storms. Now, a monarch butterfly can survive to 19 degrees. But if a storm comes in and the butterfly gets wet Mm -hmm. and it falls below 32 degrees, it will not survive the Mm -hmm. ice storm. So a storm like this came through in 2002 and wiped out 33 million butterflies. That was our entire population in 2013. So we're trying to build a population or to conserve habitat to build a population sturdy enough to survive another winter like that. We had another winter like that just a few years ago mm-hmm. uh, where we saw a huge winter storm come in and decimate a, a large number of monarch butterflies. So in order to build that kind of population of at least 100 and, or 221 million butterflies in that range somewhere, we need to put out about 1.6 billion more stems of, of milk. milkweed. And so that's kind of the goal that the uh, Monarch Conservation Network is working on now. But we're seeing some great partnerships and we're seeing people work really hard. And, you know, I would highly recommend the Monarch Watch uh, Way Station program for urban and suburban people trying to do something uh, to help with monarchs and pollinators. Because monarch habitat is a pollinator habitat with milkweed. So if you're building a monarch waste station, if you're adding milkweed to your garden, you've built a monarch waste station mm-hmm. and you're doing everything that you possibly can to help pollinators when you're adding nectar plants. Monarchs need more amino acid, uh, a little less sugar, and maybe a little more salt. So you can mix your nectar plants up a little to cover that. Um, There's some so great what, what resources. What would be some other nectar plants that we should plant? Well, for monarchs, I would say here in Texas, in my area of the country, and there's some a great uh, plant list on Monarch Watch um, for Texas specifically. Okay. But in Texas, I would say Lantana is a really good one for monarchs. It has all the components that they need. Um, the ones that deer don't eat are another thing to, to consider in this area. Right. But lantanas are great. Uh, sages or salvias are really great. Um, any kind of ray flower that you see the 
the distinct center with petals. Right. Um, what we call the bullseye flower are great flowers to put in there. We want the fall flowers. So we're looking at asters. We're looking at um, liatris or gay feather. Those are oh, yeah. monarch magnets. Oh. They love those. Uh-huh. Deer don't eat them. They don't like that mouthfeel. Yeah. So um, those are great. I would also recommend any of the eupatoriums, the thoroughwort, um, mist flower, oh, yeah. those types of things yeah. are really great. Do we know what the current population is of monarchs? We measure by area. Right. Because within a certain area of the uh, volcanic mountain ranges, you could have anywhere from 20 to 50 million butterflies okay. in an area. So, okay. so if we measure area, we know butterflies are in this area, in this area, in this area, in this area. Mm-hmm. So we measure areas. So we had four hectares maybe the previous year. This year we had six hectares. So, so we knew populations had taken over more area. Okay. So it was um, it was it was a better count, uh, more accurate display of how much area the uh, butterflies covered uh, okay. than it was. You can't count individual butterflies. No. Well, so, yeah. so we can measure a that. hectare or um, yeah. you know about two point two five acres per hectare. Right. So um, we showed a much larger area, a larger area than the previous year. So we have seen a rebound um, over the last three years. So I'd like to think that our conservation efforts are beginning to show some uh, some improvement. I know that I've had a great deal of difficulty in trying to make milkweed grow in my garden. Um, are there some tips and tricks you can give us uh, Sure. In, our, in terms of uh, growing milkweed. <laughs> I'll try. Milkweed is very tricky business. And I know a lot of people lose interest after trying several times. Milkweed is um, something that you really want to do two things with. One, you want to cold stratify it. Um, if you're not going to follow natural processes by seeding it at a certain time of year. So if you take your milkweed seed and you could put it in uh, some coarse sand and moisten the sand, even put the sand in a baggie, Mm -hmm. wet the sand and squeeze out any excess moisture and then put your seeds in there and put it in the refrigerator and leave it in the refrigerator about four weeks before you plant it. Then you could start it in a tray or you could go ahead and put them right into the ground um, the first of the spring, even as early as February here. And you could try that. And that coarse sand actually roughs up the coat a little bit, scarifies it, if you will. Yeah. So it's a little easier. One thing that we... So you're not burying it, you're just laying it on top? That's correct. And that's true of most native seeds. Yeah. You do not want to bury them. If you look at what what milkweed does naturally... It loses its seed through a piece of chaff that flies through the air and generally will stick into the bottom of a bunch grass or stick into the bottom of a shrub and lay there on top of the ground over winter where it gets rained on and it gets cold over the winter, maybe even a little bit of freezing here, um, and then germinates in the spring. So I generally go out in November on a cold, drizzly day, broadcasting with the sand, making sure that it's making contact with the soil. We can mimic that through yeah. the process that I told you about earlier, through cold stratification. And then once you have it, let's say you're lucky enough to get germination, mm-hmm. 
Um, what do you do? Do you take care of it by watering it, keeping it moist? One thing about milkweed, you don't want to overwater. Uh-huh. So I use what I call the thumbs up test. I put my thumb into the soil, and if it is dry all the way to the bottom of my thumb, I water from the bottom. If you water from the top, huh. you risk rotting the yeah. the root system at mm-hmm. the at the soil level or damping off. So I water from the bottom. This also draws the root down. Yeah. Milkweed is a priority plant, meaning that it wants disturbed areas. It grows in disturbed oh. areas and forms a tap root, a deep tap root. Okay. So if you put it or try to put your seedlings into something that's too shallow, uh, there's a good chance that your root's going to get twisted or spiraled um, and isn't going to have that straight, uh, good tap root. So if you do your seedlings, either put them into the ground soon after you germinate or put them into a deeper pot so that your tap root has a chance to get straight down and water from the bottom. Always trying to make sure that the, the roots are pulling straight down. And then um, you can do either go ahead and put your new seedlings into the ground, just watering only when they're very dry, or you can put them into deeper pots, watering from the bottom, and put them in the following year. Give them a good strong root system and then get them into the ground. But milkweeds do not like to transplant. I have not known anyone that successfully dug a mature milkweed out of the ground and was able to put it into their home garden. Um, what about milkweeds that you might buy at the nursery? I've, I've done that as well. Hmm. It was really hard to find any native milkweed at the nursery for a long time, and all you could get was tropical milkweed. And tropical milkweed is beautiful and very yummy for larvae. And it's a wonderful addition to the garden, and monarchs love it and the other butterflies love the blooms and it's lush and it's usually too good to be true and what was happening for a long time because they draw aphids milkweeds just draw aphids aphids are part of the milkweed community but you would go into these stores and they would have these huge beautiful tropical milkweeds with no aphids but what was happening was you would bring these home put them in the garden and i would find you would find dead caterpillars, and they were being sprayed with neonicotinoid uh, pesticides okay. to make them look so beautiful. Okay. So you have to be really careful when you're buying your milkweeds in the nursery. You want to ask your nurseryman, do you spray pesticides? Because we don't want to kill the pollinators that we're trying to draw to the garden. Wow. Yeah, that's really important to know. The I other issue with the tropical milkweed is that if we get too much of a colony of the tropical milkweed going, it's the one plant that's not going to senesce during migration. So you are essentially offering up this wonderful overwintering area mm-hmm. for a migrating monarch where they come in and they say, well, the milkweed's not gone here. So maybe I'll just bring my friend over and we'll overwinter here and we'll we'll yeah. break our diapause and come into sexual maturity and we'll just overwinter here. We have everything we need. We have milkweed, we have nectar, we have warm mm-hmm. a place to live. Right. And so we'll, we'll interrupt migration and we'll just live here over the winter. So we have huge overwintering areas in Florida where tropical milkweed... Oh. lives and thrives mm-hmm. we have overwintering areas in south texas where tropical milkweed lives and thrives and 
other areas. Um, so we recommend that you, if you have a large amount of tropical milkweed, that you cut those stems back around the 1st of October. Um, so as not to interrupt migratory monarchs. And my last question, do you dream about monarch butterflies? Yes, I do, <laughs> especially during tagging season. I mean, I've tagged up to over 300 monarchs in a day. It's more daydreaming about monarchs than night dreaming, I think. I daydream about a time when I'll see monarchs in the fields again, and I daydream about children seeing monarchs. And that concerns me more than anything else, to think that the children of this, it makes me a little teary even, to think that when I was young and my dad would take me out and show me where these caterpillars were and show me how that worked and show me why milkweed was important. And I took children by the hand and showed them the caterpillars and why the milkweed worked and, and what a monarch did and, and, and how magnificent they were. And to think that these children may not be able to take children out and show them what a monarch is and what milkweed is for and why it's important. It just could break your heart to think that majestic, mysterious creature just wouldn't be there for our grandchildren. It would be a very sad day. But yes, I dream of monarchs. I dream of a future for monarchs. That's what I dream of. Go to monarchwatch.org and learn how to create a monarch way station. Involve young people in a project to save the monarch butterfly and other butterflies. We can do it. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell a friend about Mothering Earth. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news.